GitHub blog is, is a really good place to kind of keep up with software development stuff in general. But there was a statistic here that came out of a code secure code warrior survey, which said that 86% of developers do not view application security as a top priority. Ooh. Ben and Cassidy, love your thoughts on this one. My thought is bad, bad. <laughs> All right, everybody, listen up. I got a good one for you. Gatsby is the fastest front end for the headless web. If your goal is building highly performant, content-rich websites, you need to build with Gatsby. Go to gatsby.dev slash stackoverflow to launch your first Gatsby site in minutes and experience the speed. Go on over, support the show. That's gatsby.dev slash stackoverflow. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I am Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow, joined as I often am by my wonderful colleagues and collaborators, Matt and Cassidy. Welcome to the show, y'all. Hello. Hello. So first up, we have some news. We've talked a few times on the show about the Mac Mini and the latest version, which basically stacks it's a double stack Mac mini. Now Windows is looking to do a similar thing. Whoever dropped this link made me mad it was you. Can you talk us through what this Windows ARM machine is and why it would matter to folks who, who work on the software development side? Yeah, so this is an article from The Verge which popped up um, on May 24th. And it, it comes with a couple of updates to Visual Studio, which I found quite interesting. So Microsoft are working on a native ARM64 version of Visual Studio 2022 basically like an, a native version that can be used with more mobile-centric devices, things like the Surface Pro X or whatever that might be. And as part of that, they are also launching their own ARM device, which from the graphics that they've provided looks incredibly sleek. I'm not sure if anyone has seen this. If you do, I recommend it to go and check it out. It does look like an M1 Mac Mini. It's a very similar design aesthetic. It's nice and matte black. Apparently, you can stack them, put, easily put them into servers, all kinds of things. And there's a big push here for wanting to build cloud-native AI applications as well. So it's an interesting push from Microsoft to be kind of moving into that space. But I'm always happy with updates to Visual Studio Code and everything else that comes with it. Cassidy, as a VS coder, does this mean anything to you? or it's So meh. to be clear, it's Visual Studio, not Visual Studio Code. No, but it says both. Oh, I was just going to say it says ARM support for Visual Studio and VS Code. Oh, nice. That's so both. I missed that in the title. But I think it's a bigger deal with Visual Studio because it's such a hefty IDE that lets you build really intense languages like C++ and, and C Sharp and C. Meanwhile, Visual Studio Code are much more dedicated to like text editor with plugins that can kind of turn into an IDE and stuff. And so I think... I think it's quite a big deal because it feels like it's a new generation of computing that is coming into play where where I think we could see a lot of changes. I mean, I'm very attached to my PC that I've Frankensteined together over the years with all the different parts and stuff. But if things get smaller and, and faster, that's very exciting. I had a question on that front for both of you, which is, you know, one of the topics that keeps coming up is remote work and hybrid work. A number of big tech companies that have been asking folks to go back to the office have now walked it back. And I've met a few people from Stack Overflow who live, you know, the nomadic lifestyle, five cities in five years and, you know, traveling around. But when I talk to people often, you know, they have a very dedicated home setup. So like, from your perspective, what is the lightest 
weight kind of thing you could bring on the road if you wanted to travel around for a few weeks, but also be working? Like, do you have a, a travel setup that allows you to continue to function as a software developer? I am the worst person to ask for this <laughs> by far, because I was thinking the other day about, oh, well, Mexico City is not too far away and it'd be nice to go down and get some sun for a little bit. And so I was trying to look at these giant Peloton cases to fit in so I could bring my a Mac Studio desktop as well as a oh Mac God. Mini with me <laughs> down to Mexico. <laughs> so I would advise works. You, I mean, you know. having a home base station where you've, you've got like all your tools and everything else. It's amazing. I honestly think a lot of people can get by with just a 14-inch MacBook or a 16-inch MacBook or whatever Windows-based device they happen to be using on. Cassidy, do you have any thoughts to bring me back down to reality? Yeah, I think you're right on the laptop front. It depends on what you want to do. If I'm just coding, emailing, podcasting and stuff, I could probably get away with just a laptop and maybe a microphone and headphones. But I also like mechanical keyboards and I enjoy typing with them. And so that this is where I get impractical. <laughs> I might want to bring... A couple, perhaps, to, to type along with. I, I think... Yeah, just a couple. Yeah, you know, on. 10, who knows. If it's just <laughs> like being away for a week or two, I can get away with just a laptop. But if I need to do more like podcast recording or video recording or doing more intense typing, I'm going to want more accessories. One of the things that I actually found really useful for anyone who's going remote or is, is traveling and trying to program as well is that if you happen to be part of the Mac ecosystem, and I, I understand I talk about Mac a lot on this podcast and I will be labeled as a shell, that's <laughs> fine. That's okay because I think one of the, one of the cool things you can do with traveling remotely and, and working from a Mac ecosystem is when you pair the iPad Pro or whatever that might be with the Mac and have that vertically orientated to the right-hand side of you then using, it's not the universal control system, but using that in sidecar. So you have your IDE up or docs or whatever else that might be in a vertical orientation. And then whatever you're doing in front of you works extremely well. So for anyone who's thinking about traveling, have a look into that kind of system because I would give that a 10 out of 10 Matt seal of approval recommendation. Having a tablet on the side is really great, even if you don't use it as an extra monitor. When I was teaching full-time pre-pandemic, so I was traveling and doing a lot of workshops all over, it was really nice having just my speaking notes on the iPad and then all of my live coding and stuff on the laptop, because then I could kind of have the dedicated screen for the coding so that way people could see it and, and the results of that coding. But then having my speaker notes on the side just as an entirely separate entity was really, really nice to have too. So it kind of depends on software then at that point, but it was really, really nice to work with. Second news item I wanted to just briefly touch on here, it was an appreciation for Morrowind, which is having its 20th anniversary. I may have mentioned this on the podcast before, my favorite way to play video games is to go to this site, Good Old Games, and download like things that require a DOS emulator from when I was a child. Mm -hmm. And it got me thinking about like sort of how much of our nostalgia now is, is based around this. We've talked a few times on the show with different guests about how gaming got them into programming and started them on their career in technology. And one of the big things mentioned in this one was what gave this game its longevity was the freedom and sort of flexibility of its mod system. So I was watching a video the other day. It was about Star Wars Battlefront and people were freaking out. And basically somebody had spent I don't know. They must have spent at least a year with a team of people and released a mod that basically like doubled the size of the game. It was like whoever, you know, the big studio was made the game with 16 characters. 
now it has 32 and the new ones look just as good as the like originals, you know, and it's all these like famous Star Wars folks. And it just kind of blew me away thinking about, yeah, all the work that happens in that sort of open source way. And the fact that in that case, it was just done out of like love. You had to run it on PC with like seven other mods running, you know, like they like picked up different pieces from all these different people. And if you ran all seven plus this huge like package they dropped, you basically, it was like as if they had released a whole new version of the game, which I thought was really cool. But let me stop yammering on. I'll let y'all weigh in. Are there games you're deeply nostalgic for or mods that you have participated in? I think the very quick, easy answer is Pokemon. For myself, the just like Pokemon on Game Boy was something that was so fun for me as a kid. And that was something where my sister and I, we didn't really get to play video games as kids much, but my dad found a Game Boy on the side of the road, like in a ditch. And (laughs) that Christmas we got a Game Boy and it had Pokemon Blue in it. And we were obsessed and we didn't have any instructions or anything. And so we probably played it significantly slower than any other child in America. But it was such a blast. And to this day, like I still play Pokemon Go and I love all of the different variations of Pokemon that there have been, whether it's like modding the original Game Boy games or, or Advance SP, all, all of the later ones, or just playing on the new ones on, on the Switch or the user-generated ones on PC. Somebody else's parent was like, give it, and they threw it. I know exactly that's what it was. That was always something that like my mom would say, saying like, if you two fight over this Game Boy, I will do exactly what that other parent did and (laughs) just toss it out the window. Yeah. How about you, Matt? There's too many to count, to be honest, because I have a very warm, special place in my heart for a variety of different video games. If anyone was around for the Nintendo 64 era, Banjo-Kazooie will always be S-tier. Just <laughs> it, that game was everything for me. So I, I really enjoyed that. And the music by Grant Kirkthorpe as well is just every time I hear that opening jingle, it's going to make me smile. I never really got into modding as such, but I did for a little bit when Skyrim came out. And I know that is come out on, maybe it'll come out on this new Microsoft um, processor. I don't know. It seems like it's coming out on every single possible device, but there was something called the ENB mod as part of Skyrim, which basically was like a huge overhaul for like the lighting systems and environmental effects. And it was, it added in depth of field, which is a very like graphically intensive thing for a computer to do. So when you're looking around, like if you looked at a flower, it would all of a sudden like produce this Gaussian blur on like the background. And it was very difficult to run, but that was, it it was just fun because we'd be, we'd have a group of friends together and we'd be figuring out what mods worked with what other mods and what things were breaking and like what settings we can treat to try and get the most performance out of, out of Skyrim. It was, it was a lot of fun, but to your point, Ben, yeah, a lot of the, I found like most of the games that have a lot of longevity behind them are ones that rely on kind of like user generated fun. I mean, look at Minecraft. Minecraft yes, exactly. is huge. And like I, I play it both like vanilla and, and people are just like, whoa, you do that? And then I also play it with mods where like the graphics are suddenly much prettier and, and the lighting is, is much cooler. And there's servers that you can play that are like Hunger Games. And then there's there's servers where you have to follow a certain story. It's it's so moddable that I, I don't see Minecraft ever going away anytime soon just because there's so much you can do with it. Funny story, a friend of mine or somebody I used to talk to a lot for the news who's been on the show, David Pakman, he built the like local Minecraft server for himself and his kids when they were really into it and everybody in the neighborhood could join and play. So it was like, you know, 15, 20 kids on a sort of sharing a Minecraft server. But that then became like a very heavy responsibility for him when like somebody destroyed somebody else's castle. And it's like, 
now he has to mediate between that child and their parents and like explain what's going on. And, you know, he had to be judge, jury, and executioner. It was a little too weighty, I think, of a challenge. But this is from uh, September 2014, why parents are raising their kids on Microsoft. That was a good one. That happened to in college where my study group, they had a Minecraft server that they were very, very into. And I stayed away from it because I knew I wouldn't get anything done. But then... (laughs) You yeah, but then this, as yeah. as I would be like working, I would someone would come and saying like, "Oh, my house was broken into last night." I'd be like, "Oh no, what?" And it turns out they were talking about their Minecraft house, and it was just someone else in the study group, and they couldn't figure out who. And the drama that that caused, just because people <laughs> were so into it. It's sad that I also have a Minecraft story that was basically the same. Like a friend of mine <laughs> was running a local New Zealand <laughs> Minecraft server, and then drama happened and all the chat and stuff like that, that's all stored on a server so they can go through and see exactly what was said at all the times. And he was just like, oh, I'm just trying to get my assignment done, but there's this Minecraft drama that's happening and I'm responsible. And it just became this whole other job, basically. So, yeah, it's... The other piece of that story was then the, the guy's son did enroll in an entire summer camp to learn Java. So nice. good for him. To, oh, nice. Uh, so Congrats. Could, uh, That's the way to go. Get to the top of the heap in the Minecraft crowd. All right. We have one last topic of conversation here. We've touched on this before, you know, just about sort of GitHub and NPM and the degree to which, you know, they do or don't have a responsibility to help folks out when it comes to security. So we had a piece shared from GitHub Security Lab going over some of the most common vulnerabilities and then a bit of what their bot, depend a bot can do to sort of alert you to this. So I'm familiar with most of these, but I'm just going to read them through. And if, if y'all have thoughts, I'd love to hear. The SQL injection is a classic. It's even got its own XKCD, obviously. The command injection, the cross-site scripting heard. I, I feel like SQL injection or cross-site scripting are the two that I've even heard like on mainstream news programs. Mm-hmm. Like This is like one that's come up. And then the cross-site request forgery, CSRF. So I would like to hear thoughts, especially on the two I don't know much about, the command injection and the forgery. Have you ever had to deal with these? Are these things that nowadays, because of these automated catchers, you don't have to think about? What's your thoughts on these sort of common vulnerabilities and where they live in your day-to-day as software developer, developer advocate? Thank goodness I haven't had to deal with them that much. Back, way back in the day when I was a back-end developer, I had an issue at one of the companies I worked for, I'm keeping this very intentionally vague, where basically <laughs> yeah, let's it out. Yeah. one of the commits that someone did push resulted in something that accidentally allowed for cross-site scripting. And like, luckily, mm-hmm. thank goodness, people didn't take advantage of it right away and we were able to fix it. But it allowed us to accidentally do that to ourselves and we ended up like accidentally swapping a bunch of people's authentication cookies. And it was very mm. bad. And oh. thank goodness we caught it before someone malicious dealt with it. But unfortunately, we didn't realize that we were the malicious person messing with it and, and had to fix so many vulnerabilities because of that. <laughs> Calls are coming from inside the house. Yeah. yeah gosh, I was rough week. When I was at university, we had this during the computer science labs, you could basically submit if you had a, if you were having issues or whatever else, you could submit a uh, request ticket to whoever was running the lab to be like, my Python's not doing the thing it's supposed to do. Can you help me please? <laughs> and so they would get the message and come over and help you out. And it would be some grumpy third or fourth year student who was like, oh, I've had to deal with this so many times. So you, you would submit it, but there, were, there was a message field there. And what we found out was that 
you could actually use cross-site scripting to put a message in that and then run scripts on whoever's computer whoever was doing that it's funny how often these things pop up especially on kind of like more like internal or ad hoc systems but the the one thing i i wanted to kind of chip on here was github blog is is a really good place to kind of keep up with software software development stuff in general but there was a statistic here that came out of a code secure code warrior survey which said that 86 percent of developers do not view application security as a top priority ben and cassidy love your thoughts on this one my thought is bad bad (laughs) (laughs) yeah you know, when you're when you're building stuff mainly for class and for an audience of two or three, you know, you don't think about those things, or you know, you're not as worried about the crud app. But I, I do think you'll you'll get hip to it pretty quick. And actually, interestingly, we were talking today with some folks from Skillsoft, and they made a really good point, which is that, for example, security architect, the cybersecurity architect now, or the people who are in charge of that, need to have this whole other set of skills which I hadn't thought about around sort of social understanding because they are the ones often internally at the company tasked with saying like what would a spear phishing attack look like or if it did happen like who would they be targeting and how can we like actually get this may be a good example people who don't take this seriously to take it seriously so there's a whole social emotional register to this where you have to be very savvy and know to protect yourself alongside like whatever you know coding or math skills you might have. I went to a conference earlier today called the Mux Informational, and uh, Mux is a video API startup that they do a lot of really cool things. And one of the talks was discussing how it's really great to run things with APIs and not build it from scratch because then you can rely on the expertise of these companies to do it right. Where, for example, if you want to build authentication, you could use something like Stitch, where we we talked with uh, their CTO. Juliana uh, on the podcast a while ago or Auth0 or, or something where they can handle the authentication and security stuff so you don't have to build it yourself. Or if you want to do something with phones, you could use Twilio so you don't have to do it yourself. Or in the talk I saw, you could use Mux and, and Mux would handle the video side of things and you don't have to do it yourself. And I think with the whole like Jamstack philosophy that's very popular and the decoupling philosophies in development in general that are pretty popular... Luckily, we see that growing a lot so that luckily people don't have to care about security and stuff as as much anymore because the services do it for you. And I do think that we should all still care at least a little bit about it, but maybe don't build everything from scratch and use some services that can handle the really nitty gritty stuff for you. I will counter that argument as well, Cassidy. And I'm very much kind of like on the same page where like, leave the experts to do the security thing because if you're just if you're a front-end developer or a back-end developer or whatever else like this is why their careers are in security because it is really incredibly complex but outsourcing that to other companies as well and relying on those and having that trust there can also bite you in the bum because there was there was an article fairly recently from Forbes which documented some very popular companies that we all know who relied on that OAuth to log into their various websites. And there was a rather severe security vulnerability between a couple of those OAuth platforms as well. So while it is a good idea to lean on those when you can, it's also that trust element as well. You need to to be a little bit skeptical, I think. That's very true. That's, I mean, we're seeing that right now with Heroku had such a massive breach that I think it's still going on and it's been weeks and people are, deeply affected by it. And and I think the GitHub integration still isn't done as of the recording, just because it's, it's 
been so chaotic. And so you're very right. Yeah. Everyone is susceptible to security vulnerabilities. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we can go all the way back to those, you know, sort of like a supply chain attacks, you know, that start, you know, at the level of like corrupted firmware or even hardware. So you don't want to go down that rabbit hole. You'll never sleep at night, but I hear what you're saying. I mean, <laughs> it's good to have a general understanding. And then I think to to trust, but verify. Yeah, trust, I think the lesson trust, really verify. is Very like, good. you will probably be hacked. What will you do in reaction to that? And how will you prepare when when that inevitably does happen? All right, everybody. I think that'll do it for this show. I have not one, but two great Stack Overflow questions to share with you. This is from the Stack Exchange on law. Is it illegal to ride a drunk horse? Apparently, uh, according to this answer in Germany, you must be aware of the condition of your vehicle and can be held responsible if it's not safe to ride. So potentially the answer is not legal to ride a drunk horse. <laughs> All right, time to give a shout out to somebody who came on Stack Overflow and shared a little knowledge. They've got a lifeboat badge for helping to spread some understanding around the network, checking if a number is not in range in Python, thanks to Marcus Meskanen. This was asked six years ago and has been viewed 78,000 times. Thank you, Marcus. I am Ben Popper. I'm the director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. Email us, podcast at Stack Overflow with questions or suggestions. We'll shout you out. And if you enjoyed the show, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps. I'm Cassidy Williams. You can find me at Cassidoo, C-A-S-S-I-D-O-O on most things. And I'm Matt Kiananda. I'm a technical advocate here at Stack Overflow. You can find me online at Matt Kanda, M-A-T-T-K-A-N-D-E-R. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there, riding a horse, whatever you're doing. And as always, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye.